Slow Burn Media and Bill Huffman present Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. There is yet another murder mystery plaguing police, this one out of Atlantic City, New Jersey, where authorities there say they are eyeing several persons of interest in a string of unsolved homicides dating back to 2006. Sun, surf, and glittery casinos. That's the image Atlantic City puts out to attract millions of visitors and billions of their dollars. But this is another side of Atlantic City. November 20th, 2006, two people stumbled across the body of Kimberly Raffo. When police arrived, they found three more women's bodies, no more than 50 yards separating them. They worked the Atlantic City boardwalk. They were all found murdered and dumped in marshlands. Those murders remain unsolved. The search for clues continues 12 years after the bodies of four women were found in a West Atlantic City drainage ditch. The bodies of Kim Raffo, Molly Diltz, Barbara Breedor, and Tracy Roberts were found in the ditch behind the Golden Key Motel, November 20th, 2006. Investigators say the work continues every day to try and bring the people behind their deaths to justice. Anyone with information is asked to call the Atlantic County Prosecutor's Office. Curtis Silva for CBS Philly. This is one of those men, Terry Olson. He and his lawyer, James Leonard, agreed to an interview. Did you murder these four women? I absolutely did not have anything to do with it. This fits the FBI definition of serial killing. After finding the bodies here, one of the challenges investigators faced was that the elements had dramatically reduced the amount of recoverable evidence in the case. They worked the Atlantic City boardwalk. They were all found murdered and dumped in marshlands. Those murders remain unsolved. Everybody counts. Um, you know, every, everybody, you know, every person's a child of God. And we, you know, we, we view every person, uh, every victim uh, of every crime, particularly, you know, crimes uh, of violence like this, as, as worthy of our best efforts. And anyone with information is asked to call Crime Stoppers at 609-652-1234, or you can call 1-800-658-8477. That's 1-800-658-TIPS. These were ladies who had a particular lifestyle, a lifestyle that uh, caused them to want to live below the radar. Tracy Ann Roberts, 23, was from Delaware and moved to Atlantic City for a job dancing. Without any disrespect to Mr. Olson, uh, he, he's not Machiavelli, okay? He's, he was simply answering their questions. I think that he presented to them an attractive target. Hello and welcome to episode 100 and something of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media production. On this week's episode, I'll be wrapping up my four-part series on who killed the Atlantic City Four, and I will lay out where the case stands today, the rewards available, and most importantly, I'll give some background on the victims whose families are left waiting for answers. Before I begin, I'd like to first thank Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast for joining me the past two weeks. I hope he brought you guys some insights into the case. He's always a great guest. So let's give a little recap on the case. The bodies of four women were found spaced several feet apart in a span of just over 300 yards, and they were all strangled or asphyxiated. All four women were found face down and barefoot. In the Atlantic City case, detectives didn't have a crime scene. 
Raffo, Brader, Roberts, and Diltz were all believed to have been killed elsewhere before their bodies had been dumped, leaving precious little evidence to go by. Now, authorities have admitted that the water probably washed away any trace evidence, and it would be months before prosecutors acknowledged the fact that, at the beginning, these cases were not connected to one person. Now, in a NewJersey.com article, an anonymous police officer provided some insight into the investigation, where he said there was DNA found under the fingernails of Kim Raffo. Now, it could have been from incidental contact and not connected to her death, but the DNA did not match anyone in law enforcement databases. In another misstep, the official said the investigation did not immediately include veteran Atlantic City vice officers because the women were found in Egg Harbor Township. Those officers would have been very familiar with the streetwalkers and could have provided significant insight into their work and the contacts that they would have had on the streets. The task force of detectives spent months, years, and I don't know how many hours investigating the murders and trying to find any connection between the murders of the 10 women found in Gilgo Beach out on Long Island and the Atlantic City Four. The only local person who drew investigators' attention was 35-year-old handyman Terry Olson of Halloway Township. Now, as I mentioned before, he had spent a month at a room at the Golden Key Hotel, which was just a few feet from where the bodies were found. Now, the women whose bodies were found were more than just victims. They had families, parents, and friends who cared about them. Each of the women were not just victims of a serial killer, but they were victims of addiction. All four of the women were known to use hard drugs such as cocaine and heroin, as well as pills here and there. Now, these drug choices is what led them to a life on the street, where a quick trick can equal a nighttime high. As the women fell deeper and deeper into addiction, the lives they once knew began to fall away, some quicker than others. But at the end, all four of the women were facing a battle of addiction and poverty, which led to the choices that may have ultimately led to their eventual demise. So who were these women and what led them to the seedy Golden Key Motel? Barbara Brader, she was 42. Now, her life began to fall apart slowly. She agreed to give up custody of her daughter about three and a half years before she was found. And she actually had gone to college and spent two years uh, studying at Penn State. And it was only a year later that she was working as a prostitute on the streets of Atlantic City. Now, Brader was twice arrested for soliciting a police officer in Atlantic City in the year before she was found dead. And she was also the second victim of the uh, the murder. Now, she worked as a prostitute to support her crack habit, and she disappeared in October 2006, but it was not reported for several weeks. Then you have Molly Jean Diltz, who was 20, and she was last seen alive just a few days before her disappearance. And she also may have been working as a sex worker. Now, according to an extensive article in the Post-Gazette, Molly was an impulsive traveler, and she rarely did it in comfort. She spent time in a homeless shelter and a county-rented apartment, and basically she was living in a decrepit neighborhood in Philadelphia until she finally moved from room to room and doorway to doorway in Atlantic City. And in the article, it says that she was a prostitute basically scoring nuggets of cocaine. 
Now, Molly did become close with another victim, Kim Raffo. According to a NewJersey.com article, quote, In 2001, Raffo began a drug-fueled extramarital affair that friends and families say sparked the spiral that took her to the streets and the seedy hotels of Atlantic City. Now, in Atlantic City, friends of Raffo occasionally held steady waitressing jobs, including a stint at Mama Mott's, a popular Italian restaurant, which was located between the casinos and the boardwalk. But basically, her drug habit worsened, and she eventually ended up on the streets, where she became well-known to fellow prostitutes, to police, to drug dealers. But Kim was a mother, a wife, and a daughter. And the former waitress, she left behind a husband and a children for a life of drugs and prostitution in Atlantic City. Now, she was last seen the day before her body was discovered. Then there was Tracy Ann Roberts, who was 23, who grew up in Delaware, where she was a high school dropout. She landed in Atlantic City just about a year after high school, and the first signs of trouble were when she basically began experimenting with drinking and drugs when she was a teenager. Now, it was at 16 that she dropped out of high school, and then became a regular presence on the streets of Atlantic City. According to several other prostitutes, life on the streets was really hard for Roberts, and the addiction had taken a toll on her looks, and addiction has always been a problem for her, and so she basically was selling sex to support her drug habit. And she was last seen in November 2006 when she was hit in the throat and hospitalized by a man who wished to be her pimp. Now, she did want out. Unfortunately, her way out was not what anyone would have expected. Rafa, who was 35, was strangled. Roberts, 23, was asphyxiated. The bodies of Dilt and, and Brader were too decomposed to determine a cause of death. For years, the Golden Key Motel became home to crack addicts, prostitutes, and anybody that was able to pay 15 or $20 a night. And according to the former deputy mayor, Jake Glassy, it had become an eyesore for the entire area. But there was a long history to the strip of West Atlantic City, as most of these hotels and motels were built in the 1950s as a more affordable option to staying in downtown Atlantic City. The hotels were very popular for that very reason. Unfortunately, with shoddy ownership and a willingness to turn a blind eye, the Strip turned into the opposite of what the city planners had hoped for when they were first built. Now, this wasn't all the hotel's fault, as more luxurious and affordable options became available with the arrival of high-end casinos. The Atlantic City Four murders became synonymous with Atlantic City and the area, and the strip of motels that lined the city. When people hear the name Atlantic City, that is exactly what they think of. So, according to Glassy, quote, we tried for years to get those motels out of the area, and now that it's finally happening, we can hope that we can move on. Glassy said that they had tried for years to get rid of the motels in the area, but the murders really accelerated the process of basically demolishing all the hotels and motels that had become, you know, havens for crack dens and all that good stuff. Now, in order for the city to get rid of this horror, the township actually had to buy it in November 2013 for a shocking $465,000. Now, I can only assume that that has to do with the land value more than anything with the hotel because nothing in that hotel would have been worth saving. 
Now, the city hopes that the Golden Key's demolition will serve as an end of an era that has haunted both residents as well as the township's image. When the Notel Motel was purchased and then later demolished, the township approved a plan that included 20 goals to improve West Atlantic City. They hoped to attract private development that would maximize tax revenues and help revitalize an area in desperate need of a cleanup. The city laid out an ambitious plan calling for zoning changes to prohibit certain operations, which included motels, auto repair shops, schools, and any sex-oriented businesses. The goals of the new zoning requirements were to open up the region to things such as cultural centers, hotels, bars, and taverns, and possibly multifamily homes. Now, a lot of you, including myself, thought there had to be a connection between the bodies in Atlantic City and those discovered on Gilgo Beach. But a task force of detectives spent months and years investigating the murders, along with any possible connection to the other, you know, women at Long Island. And unfortunately, a connection was never able to be established, and all current reports state that they are not connected. So as the years have passed, investigators have continued to search for the serial killer they believe murdered the four women in Atlantic City. There has not been any significant news on the case in the last three or four years. On the 10th anniversary of the crime, the Atlantic City Prosecutor's Office would only say the case remains and will remain under active investigation until the case is solved and the perpetrator is identified, charged, and convicted in court. Since the killings and the killer has received the moniker the Eastbound Strangler, I have stated in previous episodes I don't like giving names to killers, but since this name is what pops up when you Google him or Google the Atlantic City 4, So I will give him 30 seconds of attention. And according to everyone's favorite online source, Wikipedia, the Eastbound Strangler, an unidentified serial killer, is believed to be responsible for the murders of four women near Atlantic City, New Jersey in 2006. Okay, that's it on the Eastbound Strangler. So, an FBI report on serial murder defines it as the unlawful killing of two or more victims by the same offender in separate events. Now, Nick and I discussed John Kelly and his company Stock, who put together a criminal profile of the offender. Kelly's profile goes a little bit like this. This paranoid serial killer is also a shy guy who is lacking heterosexual social skills. This lack of such skills results in poor relationships with women. This lack of skills was also caused by severe and early childhood trauma. Since he was traumatized in childhood, some of his daily behavior would be considered extremely childlike and immature by others who know him. He may also have a strong religious conviction, which would propel his rage towards drug-fueled addicted prostitutes. He is also an extremely dangerous man who navigates through his life without feeling guilt. He does, however, feel fear. When the women's bodies were found in Egg Harbor, the news sent a wave of fear throughout his entire body. Presently, he is fearful of being arrested and facing life in prison, or worse, the death penalty. He is paranoid for good reason. This man is known and has been seen by others perhaps while searching for a new disposal site for his next victim. With the fact that law enforcement is getting closer and following up with every tip and lead, he will surely be arrested.
Now let's take a minute to hear from this week's sponsor, BetterHelp.com. I've had to deal with my fair share of anxiety and depression in my life, and I'm happy to say that there is now an easy way to get help. Because if there is something that interferes with your happiness or is holding you back from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. You can now connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's convenient because it needs to be in our hectic lives. So go get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp really is there for you. They have 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. And guess what? If you aren't happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time. There are even apps available for your computer or smartphone. So whether you're suffering from anxiety, depression, anger, stress, relationship issues, sleeping, trauma, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, or self-esteem, they literally have a licensed professional counselor for you. And of course, everything you share is confidential. The best part is, it's a truly affordable option. Who Killed listeners get 10% off their first month with the discount code WHO. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash who. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. Again, for 10% off, go to betterhelp.com slash who. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. When dealing with dangerous men like this, and trying to stop him from committing his final act of control, which would be suicide, and some serial killers have accomplished this, the authorities will probably arrest him while he sleeps to ensure a controlled and safe apprehension. The decline of Atlantic City as a tourist destination has played a significant role in the amount of women walking the streets these days. Now, with less casinos comes less prostitution, but it also means the city has less money to pursue those ambitious plans of making West Atlantic City a place to want to be and not a place you're scared to visit. Now, according to The Guardian, quote, Donald Trump played a key role in the city's demise. At one point, 
He had three casinos in Atlantic City employing 8,000 people, which accounted for nearly a third of the area's gambling revenues. But they eventually became unsustainable thanks to a mixture of enormous debts, rival venues, weak local demand, and negative press, which suggested Trump's businesses were facilitating money laundering, something later given credence when the Taj was fined $10 million for failing to report suspicious activities. Two of Trump's former casinos, the Castle and the Taj, now have new owners, but the famous Trump Plaza, which once hosted a WrestleMania as well as Mike Tyson fights, stands derelict and is set to be demolished. And that was according to the Guardian article. Trump was always a player in Atlantic City, but he bit off a little bit more than he could chew when he built the Taj Mahal in 1990. He built it using junk bonds, and within a year, he had to file for bankruptcy, and the Taj Mahal had a liquidation sale and an auction that sold every single item that was inside the building. Now, one of the reasons Atlantic City declined so quickly was the fact that Pennsylvania and Connecticut also built attractive casino alternatives. Far from the old Trump hotels at the lot where the Golden Key Motel once stood, and it remains empty. Other hotels have been demolished, and they too are empty lots. If you just take a look on Google Street View, it is uh, pretty depressing and kind of a dystopian feel when you see what the Black Horse Pikeway looks like today. Now, the plan to reshape West Atlantic City has been delayed due to a myriad of problems, the worst being the recession in 2008, but the city still feels the effects as casinos have continued to close. Now, a title of an article from Business Insider in 2017 sums up the city's woes. Quote, Atlantic City is now a ghost town. Atlantic City was the first city to provide gambling outside of Nevada, so it provided those on the East Coast a place to vacation on the beach and be able to gamble. But in May 2012, Revel, a 57-story, $2.2 billion resort and casino, opened after a six-year battle, which had construction halts and union protests and basically all the red tape issues you can imagine. And then, just like the Taj, the casino had to file for bankruptcy twice within the first two years of operating, and then officially closed in September 2014. It has been purchased for $82 million in bankruptcy court. Think about the loss on that. And it still remains unopened. Five of the city's 12 casinos closed between 2013 and 2016. Now, these closings cost the city more than 10,000 jobs. In the mid-1990s, Atlantic City's casino industry employed a whopping 50,000 people. But in 2016, a study found that Atlantic City's casinos provided 20% fewer jobs than they did just two years prior in 2014. Hard Rock International looked to be a savior of the Trump Taj Mahal when it was purchased for, really, pennies on the dollar. But according to the National Oceanic and Atmosphere Agency, Atlantic City may not even be in existence by 2100 if we continue to see sea levels rise the way that we do. Now, Atlantic City may go the way of the Borscht Belt sooner than later, but not all is lost yet, because in April of 2000 and this year, construction began on the Atlantic City Gateway, which is a $210 million development that will include corporate 
residential, restaurant, and entertainment buildings, as well as academic facilities for Stockton University. Now, this will be the first casino, non-casino development in the city in 15 years. So as the city attempts to recreate itself, the murders of the Atlantic City Four will loom over the city until the killer is caught. So it will take you, the listener, and the people on the streets to keep a vigilant eye on who and what is going on in your neighborhood. As you keep an eye on the streets and you are aware of what you are looking for, remember that Kim Raffo, Tracy Ann Roberts, Molly Diltz, and Barbara Brader never got a chance to say goodbye to their families. And if you know anything, it's important for you to share it. Because as much as you may not approve of the lifestyle that these women were living, it does not mean that these women were bad people. These women were people that were struggling with an addiction that had taken over their lives and had basically ruined their lives and eventually led to the end of their lives. So when you think about these people and the people who struggle with addiction, I would hope that you, the listener, would give a little bit of compassion to the people that do suffer from these types of illnesses because they do become illnesses. And when they become so out of control and so unable to maintain a normal life, then it's important for the people around them to step in and take control. And I know that sounds easier than it is because all these people have tried and have had people help them. But Again, it's up to the people who want to get help, who need to get help, or are looking for help to know that help is still out there. So I will also provide in the show notes a link to the addiction hotline as well as the you know National Narcotics Anonymous website, all that good stuff. And basically know that this illness is just that it's an illness and it needs to be treated and sometimes we don't always understand why people do what they do but i can tell you what drugs can make a big difference in in how people go about their daily lives and i understand that not everybody's going to get this and i understand that i do i really do but it's also important it's like suicide you know not everybody's going to understand suicide but there is a suicide prevention hotline just like there is a hotline for addicted people that are having issues so i just hope that people will take advantage of the resources that they have out there and people who have been through these ups and downs know how to deal with these people so i just really hope that at the end of the day, the people that are still living on the streets and still suffering through addiction will one day be able to acknowledge their problem and get the help that they need. Now, in regards to addiction, I do believe that there is a serious disconnect between what people believe is a problem and what people think is just somebody having a little too much fun. But I'll say that within the last few months, I've been doing a lot of reading about the cartels and how they have managed to put a foothold into some American cities and basically control the supply of a lot of these drugs. Now, when you get 
into that type of a situation where you have cartels in Mexico running American cities, you are going to end up with a lot of situations where it's almost impossible to find the dealer. I know that there was El Chapo and he was eventually caught after multiple escapes. And I know that his wife was recently arrested in Washington, D.C. But in regards to overall drug dealing and the way that the drugs are transported into the U.S. and unfortunately a lot of them do come across the border, I think it's really vital that we don't let our guard down. And I understand that politics play a role in all of this, but I don't want to let that be an issue in regards to addiction because the drug problem is America's drug problem. It's not Mexico's drug problem. If there wasn't a desire for Americans to take drugs, then there wouldn't be as much of an interest for the Mexican cartels to supply the drugs to America. Again, we are 350 million people out of a 8 billion person world, yet we consume oodles and oodles amounts of drugs, the illicit drugs that propagate the world. And again, if there wasn't this addiction issue in America or this lack of access to, say, you know, free needles, clean needles, uh, actual processed heroin, where they could actually shoot up in a medical type of environment opposed to living on the streets, there are European cities that have taken this tack, and it has proven to work. And I understand that people don't want to say, okay, well, we're going to keep these people addicted. But what do you think methadone is? I mean, methadone is the same thing that basically, it's basically synthetic heroin. So all you're doing is you're just taking one addiction and treating it with another. So why not take a more you know, common sense approach, and that is treat these people like they have an illness and provide them with their medicine. Because if you let them basically rot on the streets, you are going to have a rampant run of, you know, hepatitis C, AIDS, HIV, you know, like you get that when you share needles, when these people don't have access to this type of stuff. And again, the problem is only getting worse. When I was a kid, I never even thought of heroin other than what they said in the movies. I mean, it wasn't even a thing until the 90s when it became a, all the rage again. So why did it become what it became? I'm not sure, but I can certainly say that for anybody who does get addicted to heroin or to any opiates... You know, thanks a lot, Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family. Way to go. Uh, but anyway, it's not your fault. I mean, most people usually go into addiction after an injury. And for a lot of these people, the drugs they're given, they're under the impression that they're okay to take because the doctor is prescribing them. Well, what happens when the doctor stops providing those prescriptions and these people need another alternative? Or these people don't have insurance and 
they just can't get their medicine. So what they end up doing is they turn to the streets. And this is where I think American drug policy can really change and really improve the lives of not only the people that end up on the streets, but the families. I mean, because this isn't one of those situations where one person gets addicted and it's just that one person. This is a this is a like a broken mirror type of situation. If one person gets addicted, that shatters like an entire family. So you have to understand that in order to get a grasp on some of these darker issues of addiction, we need to treat them like they're health-related issues, such as diabetes or, you know, cancer. I mean, they can be treated. They can be saved. These people aren't worthless. And I understand that it takes money and time to help people get sober. But I think if we put some more resources into helping people get sober, opposed to putting people behind bars, again, we have the most populous prisons, but yet we have 5% of the population in the world. So there's a whole nother episode right there is the justice system. But I mean, let's just take a second and just take a deep breath as a country and just understand that these are real people and that drugs are unfortunately a part of life. I mean, just they are. And a lot of families go through this. And I would love more than anything to see people get the help that they need. And I know that this week's sponsor is BetterHelp. And again, they're an online counseling service that does actually provide affordable options for you. So if you are addicted and you do need help, I mean, there are options for you to choose. So all I'm saying is, as Americans, as listeners around the world, I think we need to take a step back from the illegalities of drugs and look at them as more of a health-related issue opposed to a criminal-related issue and get the people that are behind bars for these types of petty crimes and in rehabilitation centers and understand that those people can contribute to society, whereas as taxpayers, we're paying to house them in prisons. So, again, when we privatized the prisons, which was the worst thing you could have done, and turned making prisoners into a profit, I mean, the whole system is ass backwards, if you ask me. All I'm saying is, and I'm going to get off my soapbox here, is that just treat drugs and people with drug addiction issues like normal human beings. They have problems. They're not the scum. They're not bad people. They may turn to some things that you may not do or have never thought of doing in your life to get money in order to purchase these items. But please, please remember, they're real people. And regardless of what your history is, we can all move forward with the perspective of let's treat this as a health issue as opposed to a crime issue. And I am stepping off my soapbox. So thank you guys so much again for listening this week. 
I know that this is a four-parter on the Eastbound Strangler, and I know I just went on a diatribe about addiction, but I just wanted to say thanks so much to this week's sponsor, a very timely sponsor, BetterHelp.com. And again, many thanks to Nick for joining me on part two and three. As always, thank you guys for tuning in. And if you enjoy this independently produced podcast and would like to help keep the show on the air, you can do so by clicking on the donate button on the left-hand side of slowburnmedia.com, and that is slow minus the W. Or you can also donate via the Venmo app with my username at bill-huffman-3. And again, any contribution really does help keep these shows on the air. And I will provide a link in the show notes. And if you want to leave a five-star review, that also helps keep the important cases that I cover in the spotlight. So, again, for those of you who'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I've covered, as well as the new shows I have in the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. And if you are new to the show, all my previous episodes are available for free wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And again, if you have any information on the cases that I have covered, you can always submit a tip via Crimestoppers.com or the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. Just reference the case that you have information for and they will direct you where you need to be. So you guys, thanks so much for listening. And until next time, stay healthy and be safe. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew, but after reading police reports, it became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.